0: Hi, my name is Wayne. The Old Testament reading is found in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 7 through 10. Go eat your food joyfully and drink your wine happily, because God has already accepted what you do. Let your garments always be white. Don't run short of oil for your head. Enjoy life with your dearly loved spouse all the days of your pointless life that God has given you under the sun. All the days of your pointless life, because that's your part to play in this life and in your hard work under the sun. Whatever you are capable of doing, do with all your might, because there's no work, thought, knowledge, or wisdom in the grave, which is where you are headed. The word of the Lord. The encouraging word of the Lord. (laughs) <laughs> Hi, my name is Margaret, and the New Testament reading is found in James one to 16-18. Don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good gift, every perfect gift, comes from above. These gifts come down from the Father, the Creator of the heavenly lights, in whose character there is no change at all. He chose to give us birth by His true word, and here is the result. We are like the first crop from the harvest of everything he created. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Linda. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Luke 24, 50 through 53. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to God. Let's remain standing as we pray. So, Father, we ask that by the work of your Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes that we would see Jesus today. And that you would open our ears, that we would hear the word of the Lord today. And that you would open our hearts, that we would be able to receive this word, that it would take root in us and begin to bear fruit in our lives. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, to the glory of God. And everybody said, amen. You may be seated. Well, this... um, This Sunday I have just a a little bit of a bittersweet uh, emotion. You know, we've been doing this series on emotions and relationships, so here's a little bit about my... Uh, emotional state today. A little bit of a bittersweet feeling about this Sunday because uh, this is my last Sunday before leaving on a pastoral sabbatical. Now, I realize that the the word sabbatical may have different connotations for different people. Uh, You might associate it with uh, uh, maybe an academic sabbatical where you take time away from teaching so you can write or or create content. Uh, For us at New Life, every full-time employee gets an extended time away every seven years. So I've been on staff at New Life Church for almost 16 years, so this is actually my second sabbatical, which I'm very, very grateful for, and we think of a pastoral sabbatical as being solely for spiritual renewal and for rest. So I will not be creating anything. I will not be writing outlines. I will not be writing books. I will not be um, even working on schoolwork, Lord willing. God help me. I will not do anything related to that sort of creative cre- creation or, or production. In fact, a sabbatical is very much an extended Sabbath. And, and one of the things that Scripture teaches us about the Sabbath is it's a time to stop. It's a time to cease, and it's a time to delight. And so those are the two things I'm going to do. I'll have a different phone. I won't be available uh, via social media. I won't be checking any of that stuff. Somehow the world will have to go on without my commentary on it. And, um, and, uh, and uh, we're, we're going to have some time away, just Holly and I, and for a little bit, and then we'll have time with the kids. And um, I, I really invite and welcome your prayers for us during the time. So it'll be 6 uh, weeks. It'll be six Sundays that I'll be out beginning um, tonight, actually. So the next couple Sundays, next week, you'll have one of my dear friends who I've known for almost 20 years, Jeremiah Parks. Uh, we'll be in the pulpit next Sunday. Jeremiah leads a ministry called Heartwork, and he's going to actually conclude this series by talking about emotional uh, healing. And he's got a remarkable story of a very, very rough upbringing with uh, different stepdads. and uh, And I'll let you tell, uh, let him uh, share his story next week. And then on the twenty sixth. Um, my friend from the UK, Pete Gregg, who leads a ministry called 24-7 Prayer, it's an amazing, amazing thing, the story of the prayer movement that is particularly sparking revival in the UK and in Europe. Pete's going to be here um, all the way from jolly old England, and he'll be uh, sharing with you uh, live here on June 26th. And then, through the four Sundays in July, the first four Sundays in July, our very own Pastor Evan Readall and Pastor Joey Jimenez will be sharing the pulpit during that time. See? They love you guys. Who cares about the guests? Yeah. So I, we, we've, we have said, since we started the downtown congregation, we said, look, one of the reasons you come in every Sunday and you see the cross and the communion table in the center, one of the reasons why the climactic moment of the service every week is coming to the table is so that you will believe with your habits and with your mind, you will believe that the one who feeds you is not the one sitting up here, but it's the one who gave his life for you. That the good shepherd, Jesus, is the one who feeds his sheep with his own life, with his own body and his own blood. And so um, this, this church and this service doesn't depend upon the, the 25, 30 minutes that we spend on the sermon. It depends on Christ. So show, make good on that belief and that conviction that we shared together. And uh, I'll see you at, on, the, on the last Sunday of July. Sound good? You know, Okay, whatever. <laughs> Well, we are in week 5 here on the series called Dysfunctional Family and obviously it's a play on words and we've been exploring emotions and relationships. There are many ways into talking uh, in many ways into a series on relationships. We could have done stages of life and all of that, but we chose emotions because one, it's it's not often talked about. And two, we sometimes think emotions are a lesser part of being human instead of trying to recover maybe a holistic or perhaps even biblically rich way of thinking about our emotions. That to be fully human is actually to be like Jesus. That Jesus is the one who is not just fully God, but fully human. And not just in this, the sense when we're talking about the doctrine of the incarnation, but also truly and fully human. And so we see Jesus Weeping over Jerusalem, and we see Jesus moved with anger about hypocrisy, and we see Jesus rejoicing with his disciples. We see him being moved, and it shouldn't surprise us because actually we see the God, uh, as the, the God which the Old Testament re- reveals the God, of, uh, the, the God of Israel, the covenant God, Yahweh. We see Yahweh being moved by the actions of Israel. We see God being moved by anger, by by joy, by sorrow. And so there's something of a hint in all of this, that to be made in the image of God is to reflect these same sorts of emotions in our relationships, but in a healthy way. So we've outlined that throughout the series. We've even gone through some of what maybe you might call negative emotions. We've talked about a fear, and we've talked about anger, and we've talked about sadness, and we've, we've tried to help, help ourselves understand a little bit about the themes that trigger these emotions, and the scripts that we import into these episodes of emotion, and how the Holy Spirit can help, help us with the Word of God to begin to rewrite some of those narratives, and we can retain the healthy use of those emotions. Fear can keep us away from danger and unsafe relationships, and anger can help us have a sense of justice and injustice, and sadness can help us enter into seasons of loss with one another. Today, we're talking about joy. Now, maybe your impression of kind of the normal Christian life is that it should be always full of joy and never full of sadness. My hope is that the last several weeks have maybe changed that or challenged that. But I also understand that it's possible that you might be sitting here, you might have been walking through this series with us, and your impression of the quote-unquote normal Christian life is just to be steady-eddy, just to be all the way across, just flat line, just don't get too excited, don't get too upset, just sort of be, you know, just all across the spectrum like this. Actually, that ideal comes to us from Buddhism and really not... Through Judaism or Christianity. That what you see in the scriptures is a, is a kind of humanity that is full of rich joys and deep sadness and everything in between. And that's why the Psalms give us this whole spectrum of emotions. So today we talk about joy not as the only theme emotion we should ever experience, nor as this thing that's sort of an aberration, like, well, I mean once in a while if you get joy, fine, but don't get too excited about it. It might lead to dancing. <laughs> when you think about when you think about relationships and and The the emotion of joy, how is joy related to our relationships? Well, it ought not to surprise us that actually when people study happiness, they think of relationships as being one of the ways in which happiness meets us. In fact, you you might be familiar with the psychologist Martin Seligman, maybe you've seen the TED Talk, but Seligman says this. He says, people who have one or more close friendships appear to be happier. It doesn't seem to matter if we have a large network of close relationships or not. What seems to make a difference is if and how often we cooperate in activities and share our personal feelings, as well as provide support to a friend or a relative. Simply put, Seligman says, it's not the quantity of our relationships, but the quality that matters. If we were to say this, to say, what what does the Lord say about this? Is this right? Does this come to... How does the Bible talk about our relationships? I think we would say that God meets us with joy in our relationships. That this understanding of happiness being one of, the, one of the things that happiness emerges from is having at least a handful of quality relationships where we can be honest emotionally and experience the kind of support and comfort and attachments that are healthy and that bring joy. This really ought not to be surprising to us because throughout the scriptures we see examples of God meeting us with joy in our relationships. Now, because there are some of you that have been in church long enough to learn how to quibble about things, um, you, might be, you might be thinking, well, Glenn, there. hang on a minute. I've seen your sleight of hand. There are, happiness and joy are not the same thing. That's true. But I would like to suggest that for our purpose this morning, that happiness and joy are not two separate categories altogether, but rather that joy is the highest and fullest form of happiness. In other words, they're on the same spectrum. I'd like to suggest that we think of it that way rather than saying, well, I've got joy, but I'm not happy about it, (laughs) you know, which is sort of the the classic Christian thing, you know, where I've got just spiritualized joy, but actually I'm the most grumpy person you've ever met, you know. And to say that actually true joy is where happiness is leading all along. And that when you have even small, what we might call a little, the little happiness that comes to us in life, say, eating an ice cream cone on a hot summer day, that even that is meant to lead us into a deeper and fuller joy. And I hope you'll see where I'm going with this by the end of the talk. So how does God meet us with joy in our relationships? Well, there's a number of ways. Specifically in our relationships, one of the things the scripture says is that marriage is a joy. Now, if you're at that moment and your spouse is next to you and you don't agree, just don't look at them for the minute. <laughs> Ecclesiastes 9.9 says, enjoy life with your dearly loved spouse all the days of your pointless life that God gives you under the sun, as if you didn't hear it the first time, all the days of your pointless life, because that's your part to play in this life and in your hard work under the sun. Listen, we did this whole series last year on the book of Ecclesiastes, and we called it Finding Joy. Because there are, as it were, little breadcrumbs along the way meant to, to help us kind of trace our way to the source of joy. And one of the gifts, one of the places that God meets us with joy is in marriage, believe it or not, is in this place. So uh, sometimes Christians do a, a job of saying, you know, oh, Mary, it's just such hard work. This is so terrible and all this stuff. Look, we're going to talk in a minute about how every relationship requires cultivation, But the cultivation is worth it because there is joy there. And the scriptures kind of tell us this. It it goes on. In in Genesis, we see that children are a joy. Very early on, Genesis 30, verse 13, And Leah named him Asher, for she said, What joy is mine, now the other women will celebrate with me. And if you know anything about this story, this is a complicated household situation, to put it delicately. One man, four women, twelve kids at least. It's messy. And yet, she's saying, and through the arrival of this child, God is meeting me with joy. Proverbs fifteen twenty says, a wise child brings joy to a father, but fools despise their mothers. Now, it's worth pointing out here that this is Hebrew parallelism. This is Hebrew poetry taking opposite starting points, but arriving at the same main point, okay? So don't, don't read this verse and say, oh, oh, you see, a wise son makes a, a, a glad father, and you say, yes, so dads love it when sons are wise, but when sons are foolish, really, the moms are the ones that are heartbroken. Dads could care less, and daughters, eh, we don't know, right? No. <laughs> the point of this poetic parallelism is a way of saying, look... When you live your life in such a way that demonstrates God's wisdom, it's a source of joy for those who have invested in you. It's a source of joy to those who have invested in you. And it's a source of grief when you live with foolishness. And, the, and actually, this extends even beyond the, the strict sort of nuclear family. You think about may, maybe you're in a work environment where you have a person who's a protege, someone that you're mentoring or developing. When you see them begin to rise, all of a sudden you're saying, oh, this is so great. I love it their demonstration of wisdom brings you joy. That's true even in these quote-unquote unequal relationships, right? But then it goes on, the scriptures go on, the wisdom literature is full of this. Friendship is a joy. Ecclesiastes 4, 7 through 9, Again I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other. There's no one else really in their life, either son or brother. In other words, no one they're passing it on to and no one they're co-laboring with. Yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? Have you ever had a Wednesday like that? You say, who am I working for? Why am I doing all this? This also is vanity and an unhappy business, because two are better than one, because they have good reward for their toil. The teacher is trying to say to us that, look, friendship is a joy because friendship has a way of making the toil not seem as toilsome. And it has a way of saying, look, and even the reward that I get for my toil, now I have someone to share it with. In fact, I I bet if you were to think about your favorite job that you've ever had, it might have more to do with the people you were working with than strictly speaking the job description. It might. You say, well, when was I having the most joy at work? When was I really enjoying my, my work? It might be the moments where you felt like you were part of a team. I don't know if you're a sports fan, but several months ago, ESPN had this long-form article about the Golden State Warriors because everyone was, was agreeing that they're just fun to watch, right? And the title of the article said, Joy is the Secret Weapon of the Golden State Warriors, And I thought it was a great assessment, even from a sports perspective, because they were saying, look, the thing about this team, it's not just that they're good, and it's not just that they have the right plays or whatever, it's that there's joy, and there's so much joy in sharing the ball, there's so much joy in seeing someone else be the star on any given night, so LeBron doesn't stand a chance (laughs) against joy. (laughs) Joy... Joy in our relationships must be cultivated. I've just lost someone. (laughs) Joy in our relationships must be cultivated. The New Testament tells us that joy is a fruit of the Spirit, and certainly the result of our fellowship with the Holy Spirit produces this true and deep and abiding joy. But I think if we were to extend that metaphor and to say, if joy is the, the, the fruit of the Spirit's work... Then maybe in the gardening metaphor, what we do is not produce the fruit, but what we do is help the conditions of the soil around it, right? Uh, you now, Coloradoans, we've sort of gave, gave up on gardening a long time ago, you know? It's like, either it's going to get eaten by the wildlife, or the ground is just too darn dry and hard, you know? So we just kind of, we just put rocks over stuff, you know? <laughs> right? But, but... If you were to live in another part of the country and were to garden, you'd know, look, there's a lot, all the work goes in to caring for the soil, cultivating it. You don't make it produce the fruit, but you help. You help by putting the right things around it. We can't control our relationships. You can't say to a friend, you will be a place of joy for me. It's probably a good way to kill the friendship, right? But we can kind of till the soil around it. So I want to talk about this just for a moment. What does it mean? How do we cultivate joy in our relationships? Number one, be intentional. Now, Pastor Evan alluded to this earlier when he was talking about meal groups. You might have formal, organized meal groups, or you might have informal ones. But all of our relationships, for them to thrive, must be intentional. Now, I I remember, you know, it it was a little less than 20 years ago that I was in a dorm room with lots of friends, and being around one another was easy. We, we we were always there, and it was great. We could go, we could run out, we could do this, we could spend our time doing this. And actually, I've had the good fortune of many of my closest friends from my college years ended up moving out here. And then we began, many, a few of us began working at the same church together. Thought, wow, this is what a gift this is. And then as we began to get married and have kids and life just gets more and more full. I mean, when I was 20 and taking a full load of classes and working a part-time job and serving as a worship leader at a church, I thought, I will never be this busy in my life again. Boy, was I wrong. (laughs) And all of a sudden you realize, wow, when you have all of these other things to do, friendships are usually the first thing to go. Because it's non-essential. So you're, you're, you're saying, okay, wait, i got to get my work stuff done. i got to take care of family. i got to do all the stuff to help the house keep running. And, okay, yes, I'll take a Sabbath, and sure, and yes, I'll have a devotional life, and I'll pray, and all this stuff. But the, the first thing to go is usually the thing that seems non-essential. Oh, do I, why, do I, who has time for friendships? I, I, I just got to, you know. And maybe that's hard for some of you to imagine. But there might be a season coming in your life when it is like that. And, I mean, I I think about this now. We have four kids. A lot of our friends have three or four kids. Something's wrong with all of us. And when you think about having them over, you're like, okay, eight kids, 12 and under running around. You're like, okay, well, let's go for it. Let's do it. We're going to hang out, okay? And then you do it, and you realize you just can't have a sustained conversation, you know? So you're having, you're talking in like 90-second spurts. It doesn't get very deep, you know? And you have to work harder at it. You have to be Intentional about it. Several months ago, Holly and I, a couple times a year, we we um we kind of evaluate our rhythms via a, a little grid called the Rule of Life. Now, some of you might be familiar with this. It's an old Benedictine practice. There's many different kinds of Rule of Life. It's a pattern for life. It's a rhythm uh, for life. And one of the ones we use just has kind of these four boxes. One is uh, work. One is rest. One is prayer. And I realized a year or so ago when we first started doing it, that those three boxes were fairly easy to fill out. Like, okay, yeah, yeah, I know what I need to I know what my rhythms of work and rest and even prayer, I, I know what to write in those boxes. But the fourth box was a box called relationships. And even just recently, we were kind of going over this um, together, just her and I, and realizing, wow, why is it I, I'll fill up, like, Eight things in the other three boxes. Yes, we're going to have regular rhythms of this and this and this and this, but it just seems like, wow, why is it so hard to say? And we're going to get together with these friends or these friends once a month or twice a month. Why is it that everything else so easily crowds that out? It's hard to be intentional about relationships, and yet it's hard to cultivate the joy that God wants to give us if we don't. Secondly, one of the other ways we cultivate joy is by being loyal. Now, there, the Proverbs are full of this. I mean, we could spend a whole series talking about all the Proverbs has to say about, uh, about a good friend. I mean, one of the things it talks about with, that's related to loyalty is being able to be trustworthy so that you're not talking to others about other friends because, you know, if, if they're talking to you about your other friend, then probably they're talking about you to their other friend right? So the Proverbs has stuff to say about that, but it also has something to say about sticking through it. Proverbs 17, 17 says, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. You realize that for friendships to last, you have to live down some associations that come with it. You know what I mean by that? See, the problem with people is they're just not exactly like you which means their life might take them into other circles, other associations, other connections, other labels, and, you, and you'll realize at some point, you'll say, well, I like them as a friend, but did you see that article they shared on Facebook last night? I don't know if I want to be seen in a selfie with them today, right? I'm poking fun at this, but there is a sense in which for friends to stick together, we have to be sort of uncomfortable with saying, well... They kind of lean this way. I kind of lean this way, but it's okay. We're going to work through this. And actually, that's true even of church and church community. I've told you, I've been on staff at New Life for almost 16 years. That means I've lived down, and they've lived down some associations with me. They've had to answer, so what's the deal with Glenn? And I've had to answer, so what's the deal with New Life? And there's easy answers out of, oh, well, no, 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 I have nothing to do with that. Or there's the more difficult answers of saying, well, you know, this is my church family. Uh, This is who I'm with, and I'm who they're with, so it kind of goes both ways. Friendships at some point are tested like this, but being loyal doesn't just mean sticking through adversity. It also means being loyal enough to be honest, being loyal enough to, to speak the truth. Proverbs says, in Proverbs 27, it says, a public correction is better than hidden love trustworthy are the bruises of a friend, excessive are the kisses of an enemy. There's something about loyal relationships, loyal friendships that require a, a kind of honesty that maybe we're uncomfortable with, maybe that, that feels unloving but actually is the most loving thing to do. Sometimes the most loving thing to do is to say to a friend, hey, can I talk to you about this? I'm not sure you're thinking right about this. I just, I'd just at least like to explore that with you. I, uh, if you know me, you know I love all things C.S. Lewis, and so by default, I've also come to love the Inklings, and of course, T- Tolkien, The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings. And I read a book earlier this year about the friendship, that, uh, the friendship dynamic of the Inklings. If you're unfamiliar with it, the Inklings was a group of, of writers that began meeting twice a week, and their, their simple format was they'd come together, and then Lewis usually would stand up and say, okay, well... Is anyone going to read anything? (laughs) And someone would stand up and read a piece of their work, maybe poetry or, or a history piece that they're working on or fiction. And then they would kind of give each other feedback. And over the course of 17 years, 19 different men were part of the Inklings. Over the course of, I mean, imagine that, twice a week for 17 years. Out of that group, out of this group called the Inklings, 150 books were written. Great, many of them, great books. Think of the C.S. Lewis books alone and maybe Tolkien and think about Charles Taylor and uh, not Charles Taylor, Charles, blanking out his name. Excuse me? Thank you, Charles Williams. It's interactive here. I like that. And many of the others, including Lewis's own brother. But you know, the Inklings really began because of the friendship between Lewis and Tolkien. And that was a friendship that almost didn't continue. One day, both of them at Oxford, Tolkien, a more senior professor, Lewis, a tutor, and Tolkien decides to send Lewis home with a poem that he's written, and he takes a risk. You know, Tolkien seemed to have been a little bit more quiet, and he sends Lewis home with this poem, and and Lewis sends it back with a short little note saying, oh, what a delight it was to read your poem. And Tolkien's like, "Mm, okay, whatever. And then the next few days... Lewis follows up with a 14-page, single-spaced letter outlining all the corrections Tolkien should make to the poem. <laughs> 14 pages, single-spaced! And Tolkien loved it. Thought, this is it. This is the kind of friendship I'm looking for. This is the kind of thing. And Tolkien, by the way, was, had some pretty strong things to say about Lewis at Narnia, and he didn't really care for how Lewis was mixing and matching. But you would even argue that actually Tolkien's own work would not have been uh, would not have achieved what it achieved without Lewis and without the others and the Inklings. For example, Tolkien had written The Hobbit. Any Hobbit fans? Not the movie, but the book, because the book's better. <laughs> Always is. All right. He was going to write a second Hobbit, the new Hobbit book. And his early drafts were all about Hobbits, doing Hobbit stuff. And it was Lewis who said, um, Tolers, that's what he called Tolkien. He said, Tolers, Hobbits are only interesting when they're in unhobbit-like situations. And nobody really cares about the long history of the Shire and you know get them out of there and it was that that began to spark Tolkien to explore the realms of what could this adventure really be about. Tolkien had some 18 different versions of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. 18 different versions. In one of the early versions, Strider, Strider who would be Aragorn, Strider was a hobbit with a wooden leg. (laughs) So you see, friendship matters. (laughs) The the third thing, the third thing here, (laughs) not just to be intentional, not just to be loyal, but to be open, to be open. Other than your covenant relationship of your marriage, all other relationships do ebb and flow. And it's a good thing to not hold too tightly and to try to get everything that you can out of it. You have to be open. Don't fall in the pitfalls of being obsessive and saying, no, you are my friend, my best friend for life, no matter what Michael W. Smith says. (laughs) They're, they're They're not, you can't be obsessive. And the other thing is, we, 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 the other pitfall is to become exclusive about it, to say, well, that's it. I've got all the friends I need now, we don't need anyone else. Yes, I have friends that span nearly 20 years, but if, I have, if I'm not open to new friendships, I would be missing out on many of the sweetest relationships in my life right now, friendships of just two, three years old. And so there's this sense in which we could say, oh, it, it might be a mistake to never be open to new friendships. But then there's also the other mistake of saying, all I want are new friendships. I got no long friendships and deep friendships. But how do we do this? If we were to shine the light of the gospel on this subject of relationships, what does it look like to shine the light of the gospel on this subject? You know, the theologian Jürgen Moltmann said, find out what moves people and then shine the light of the gospel on it. If relationships really do matter so much to us, if it really is one of the places of happiness and joy in our lives, how do we shine the light of the gospel? How does the gospel modify or transform our understanding? I think the first thing the gospel would say to us is that relationships are what joy comes through, not where joy comes from. They are what joy comes through, not where joy comes from. James writes this. He says, every good gift, every perfect gift, comes from above. These gifts come down from the Father, the creator of heavenly lights, in whose character there is no change at all. This is a juice box. (laughs) My kids love this. It's been a while since I've had a juice box. And what if I put the straw in? That's pretty good. Mixed berry. It's not bad. Now what if I was drinking this, made with 100% juice, I said, man, that is so good. Wow. I love this juice. This juice is like joy. (coughs) So good. (coughs) That was not planned. (coughs) I struggle with basic functions. (coughs) And what if I got so excited about this juice? I said, you know what? I gotta have more juice i got to have it. And I said, this straw, I love this straw because this straw brings me juice. And I love the juice. Therefore, I love the straw. And I said, I'm going to take the straw. Peace out. <laughs> so wait a minute. Whoa, whoa. Where's the juice? Sir Glenn, you, 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 you fool. You walked away with the straw. The straw is what the juice was coming through, but it's not where the juice was coming from. All of our relationships in life, they are what joy comes through, but they are not where joy comes from. If we realize this, then we won't put too much weight on our friendships. But if we don't realize it, then all of a sudden, every relationship you have, you're like, oh my gosh, I have a friend. I'm so glad I have a friend. Ruth, you're my friend, Ruth. Ruth, can we get together tomorrow? Ha, ha, ha. How about the day after that? Maybe after that. Why didn't you text me back, Ruth? Ruth, I saw a picture on your Facebook that you were hanging out with other people. What's going on, Ruth? (laughs) Okay. I'm pulling the straw out of the juice box, and I'm saying, I need juice. But the relationships are not where joy comes from. They are what joy comes through. Do you see it? Because every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. If we continue to let the light of the gospel shine on the subject of relationships, what we also realize is that every joy is meant to end in praise. Another way to say this is that praise is the completion of joy. Praise is the completion of joy. Why? Because if, if relationships are just what joy comes through and that joy actually comes from God, then every joy that I experience is meant to Lead me into praise. Praise to the Father. Praise to the fountain of all delights. C.S. Lewis wrote about this in his reflections on the Psalms. He never understood what it meant to say. Why does God want us to praise him all the time? Does God have an insecurity complex? Or you know, what, what is, what's going on? And Lewis says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy. Because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. That when you're enjoying something, it has to go all the way to praise. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. Think about that. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. I've got to take this all the way to its rightful end. And that is, I've got to praise. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not to be able to tell anyone how good it is he is, to come suddenly at the turn of a road upon some mountain valley or unexpected grandeur, and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch or to hear a good joke and to find no one to share it with. Actually, the, the mountain grandeur thing, that happened to me several years ago. Before I was married, we, I was on a road trip with a, a, a music team from our college, and We were driving from Colorado to California, I think, Uh, whatever it was, we were were going through Utah, and if you've done that drive, it's beautiful. And it so happened that we were coming through these beautiful um, red rocks or formations or canyons, I'm not sure exactly what it was now, it's been a little while, but we were coming through it right around sunrise. I mean, it was epic. It was just glorious. And someone, maybe me, had put in the Braveheart soundtrack. And so, so no one in the van was awake except for the driver and me. And we're looking at this thing, you know. Ooh, you know. Like, oh my gosh, this is epic. And it was so hard because everybody was asleep. And so we couldn't say, God, ah, look, look, look. That's what joy is like. Joy has to reach It's a pointed end, and it's appointed end is praise. To say, "I, I need to thank someone for this sunset. I need to thank someone for these friendships. I need to thank someone for my spouse. I need to thank someone for these children. I need to thank someone for my parents. I need to thank someone for my, who do I thank? Lewis says, your praise goes upward to God. Lewis goes on, he says, the catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these things are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. And so the third way that the gospel transforms our understanding of relationships and is when we realize that praising God as the source of all joy actually helps preserve the relationships through which joy arrives. Praising God as the source actually helps preserve the relationships because now you won't expect what you ought not expect out of a marriage or out of a friendship or out of uh, any kind of relationship. Now you say, okay, good, I'm I'm grateful for you, but I'm glorifying God. This is why Paul writes so often in his letters, he says, I thank my God every time I remember you. The the focal point, the ending point of of his um, honoring of them is not them. The enjoyment of a relationship doesn't terminate in the relationship. It goes upward to God. It reminds me of the scene in Zoolander, you know, the first one, where, where he says, the files are in the computer. It's like the files are in the computer. And they start like hacking away, breaking the computer to get to the files, not realizing on digital it's in the computer, right? When we praise God as the source, we realize "I, I don't need to hack away and destroy these relationships. The joy comes from God. In fact, every good gift comes from the Father. And the reason it does is because it's meant to point us to the greatest gift of all, the gift of Christ. We're about to come to the table of the Lord in just a few minutes. This is called in many Christian settings the Eucharist. But that word simply means thanksgiving. The thanksgiving. Why? Because Jesus took the bread and the cup and gave thanks, yes. But because we receive and we give thanks. In the middle of that word, Eucharist, is a tinier word, charis. And in its simplest form, it just means gift. A gift. A gift in the ancient world that creates a relationship. A gift that sets the conditions up for mutuality and reciprocity. A gift that is meant to sort of land in us and result in gratitude and praise. The gift that produces thanksgiving. James begins his letter by saying, every good gift comes from the Father. And he ends his letter by saying, if any of you are suffering, they should pray. And if any of you are happy, they should sing. They should sing. So we sing. We give God thanks for all his gifts. Every one of them point back to the gift, the gift of his life, the gift of himself. Amen?